One of the books I selected recently for our discussion as a church is a novel by uh, the author Richard Powers that was called, or is called The Overstory. I'm glad I chose it for a number of different reasons. The plot line was intriguing, well-crafted. Uh, the subject matter gave us plenty to talk about and plenty to think about and discuss. But the primary positive about this book was all the incredible information it revealed about trees. Having grown up in an area that's full of them and, and adores trees and, and revels in the fact that we are the evergreen state, it is astonishing uh, how little I knew about how alive and complex trees are. It has completely changed the way I see them and the way I think about trees. The only significant problem for me that I had with this book is that I think it would have been better if it had been two separate books. At its heart, this is a nonfiction scientific revelation about trees threaded into a fictional story about the way certain characters encounter and interact with trees and nature. I had the feeling that the story served to convey all of this fascinating information Richard Powers knows about trees and his personal convictions about how we human beings as a species are killing ourselves by mistreating these living beings. Personally, I agree with most of his convictions. That wasn't the issue. But as a reader, when I begin a novel, I expect to enter into a story, not into a classroom. When I discover a hidden agenda within the story, I feel like that's a bit of a deceptive act by the author. It's a bit like if I had invited someone here who didn't really know about church, I invited them here to come this Sunday morning, and, and I told them only, uh, I'll be talking about the book, The Overstory by Richard Powers. And that's all I told them. Then they get here and they realize I left out the part that I'd be talking about another book, the Bible, and this guy named Jesus, a lot. One of the things I appreciate about our gospel that we've been looking at for months now, the gospel according to John, is the honesty about his agenda. It is not hidden. It is right there in our text, our main text for this morning. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The gospel does have a lot of historical information about Jesus, but it is neither a history of the time and place nor a biography about him. The gospel also relies on 
storytelling for its framework, and some parts of the story do sound fairly fictitious, but it is neither a myth nor a fantasy. John makes his agenda perfectly clear. This is not written about for entertainment. It's not written for information. This is written for transformation. These are included. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's his agenda. Each of those names used here by John is important. John wants us first to believe that Jesus, this person in Hebrew, Yeshua, is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus was a flesh and blood human being who lived on this earth some 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. That is basic biographical information that is actually corroborated by other uh, sources in addition outside of the Bible itself. John's written work tells many historically accurate stories, and he tells it in a standard biographical way, beginning to end. So to believe that this human being, Jesus of Nazareth, existed is no more difficult than believing that a guy named Julius Caesar existed. But John wants more for us than that. John wants us to believe that this Jesus of Nazareth was and is the Christ. We've uh, talked about this title before. In Greek, Christos is the the translation of the Hebrew uh, title Messiah, Mashiach. Either one of those, the Greek or the Hebrew, is translated into English as literally God's anointed one. For centuries, uh, the Jewish scholars and people, God's covenant people, had been waiting and looking for the anointed one. But early in the history of the the Jewish uh, faith, it was generally thought that the covenant people, the Jewish people as a whole, amounted to God's anointed one, that corporately they would fulfill all of God's hopes. But hundreds of years before Jesus, a change of thought began to to show up. The idea was that maybe the Messiah was actually one individual who, kind of like King David, would lead God's people to glory and peace. By the time that Jesus was born, the expectation of the vast majority of scholars and Jewish people was that the Messiah would be one individual. And in fact, by the time that Jesus was an adult, there had been scores of people who had claimed to be the Messiah. Uh, And there had been scores of people who had followers who believed that their leader was the Messiah. John wants his readers to believe that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the one, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And it became the unwavering conviction of Jesus' 
closest followers that their scriptures, which is what amounts to our Hebrew First Testament scriptures, were filled with all kinds of writings about a special anointed one of God. And John and the the early followers uh, were convinced that all of those writings, prophecies, were fulfilled or would be fulfilled one day by Jesus. Our First Testament reading is one example. Towards the end of that in Verse beginning in verse 9, Daniel talks about, as I was watching, uh, thrones were set in place and the ancient one of days sat down, his robes were white as snow, uh, his thrones on fire, thousands upon thousands served him and worshipped him. I kept watching and then I saw a human form, a son of man, arriving in a whirl of clouds. He came to the one, the old one, and was presented to him. This one, a son of man, was given power to rule all the glory of royalty. Everyone, race, color, and creed worshipped him. His rule would be forever, never ending. His kingly rule would never be replaced. John believes that that image of the son of man is fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And there were many more of these types of scriptures that John and others believed all pointed to Jesus. All the early followers of Christ, of Jesus Christ, had been waiting. They were all Jewish, so they had all been waiting for the Messiah to show up. They'd been watching for signs, looking for indications. And John fully believes that they found the Messiah and that it is Jesus. Tom Wright emphasizes this point. John isn't saying that the early disciples were confronted with Jesus and then tried to find a category to fit him into. John is saying that they, first century Jews as they were, were looking for a Messiah And they discovered that it was Jesus. And John wants us to believe the same about Jesus. Dale Bruner elaborates. Jesus is the point. To call Jesus Messiah means that we believe he is the point of Hebrew scripture. The predicted son of man from Daniel 7. The promised son of David from 2 Samuel 7. The prophet, like Moses, from Deuteronomy 18. The seed of Abraham from Genesis 12. The seed of the woman from Genesis 3 and on. Our gospel, Brunner continues, our gospel seeks our faith that Jesus is the fulfillment of the multiple promises of the Hebrew scriptures. But John wants even more for us. John wants us to believe that Jesus is not only the Christ, but is also the Son of God. And this is why some of Jesus' miracles were included in John's telling of Jesus' life. And you notice that, Jesus, that John 
specifically calls them signs. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. These are signs, these were signs that with Jesus, we are dealing with someone with power and understanding and a relationship to God beyond our abilities to even imagine. Somehow, this human being, Jesus of Nazareth, was also God in flesh and blood. Leslie Newbigin helps us understand what John is after. In the second half, really, of uh, John's gospel, John has shown how both by his words and by the actual manifestation of his glory, these disciples have been led to the fullness of true faith, a faith finally confessed by the words of Thomas. What it means to use of Jesus the ancient titles Messiah, Christ, and Son of God has been unfolded as the story has been told. These old titles, which could have narrowly limited meanings, have acquired in the person of Jesus a fullness which can only be expressed in the adoring words of Thomas, with which the story closes. And we remember from last week Thomas's beautiful declaration after his initial doubt. Jesus shows up for Thomas in his resurrected new life, and Thomas exclaims, my Lord and my God. This is what John wants for us. John writes down all of these stories and events about Jesus in order to convince us that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-expected Messiah, and further, he is the divine Son of God. John even admits that there are lots of other stories and events that he has left out, but he chose the ones he included for the specific purpose of convincing us about who Jesus is. But again, John isn't looking for us simply to gain information uh, and intellectual knowledge about Jesus. John wants for us transformation in Jesus. These are written not only that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but also that by believing you may have life in his name. John and the eyewitnesses to these events that he has used as sources for the uh, stories in his gospel, they have seen the transformation that Jesus can bring to the cosmos. They have experienced it. One of the classic examples of this transformation is Simon, who becomes known as Petros, the rock in Greek, Peter to us. Peter went from being this impulsive, reactionary disciple who denied even knowing Jesus when it got dangerous to becoming a bold leader of the early church who suffered his own execution rather than denounce his belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John wants that same transformation from discouragement and despair to encouragement and hope 
He wants that for us. I like the way Dale Bruner defines the life that Jesus brings. He writes, Life exists in the gospel's conviction where there is no longer the abysmal dread of death, the awful weight of guilt, the horrid emptiness of meaninglessness, the lifeless absence of God, and the futile quest of the world's multiple gods and idols. Life is present wherever Jesus and all that he means is appreciated and finally trusted. In fact, part of the reason I chose our um, assurance of pardon was for the beautiful way it talks about the transformation that Christ can bring. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. That is the transformation that John wants all of his readers to experience. This is the life that John wants for us. And I say us for a very specific reason. In verse 31, John uses a plural form of you in that opening part of that sentence. But these are written that you, and it's a plural you. John here is clearly facing towards his readers, his hearers. Those who are reading and hearing this, John has turned towards them and is, has written to them saying, essentially, I want this for you, dear reader, for you, dear hearer, since many times the scriptures were read aloud. We are included in this encompassing you, for whom John writes, we are included in his agenda. And John is not the only one who writes in hope of transforming our lives. Listen again to Peter, who's experienced this transformation himself. What a God we have, and how fortunate we are to have him, this father of our master Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now. God is keeping careful watch over us and the future. The day is coming when you'll have it all, life healed and whole. He goes on to say, I know that, that there's still some things we have to endure in the meantime, but it's a bit like what happens with gold purified in the fire. Some of that purifies our faith and our belief. And he makes this comment again, this is us. This is our experience. You never saw him, Jesus, yet you love him. You still don't see him, yet you trust him with laughter and singing. Because you kept on believing, you'll get what you're looking for. Total salvation. And then he makes that comment about how the prophets throughout the scriptures had longed to know who was going to be this Messiah. And the Messiah spirit let them in on some of it, but not all of it. How fortunate, do you realize how fortunate you are, we are, that we have seen these prophecies fulfilled in Jesus? 
the reason we are fortunate is because of the life that we can have because of it. So William Barclay sums up the agenda of all of the New Testament authors. Their aim was not to give information, but to give life. Their aim is to paint such a picture of Jesus that the reader will be bound to see that this person who could speak and teach and act and heal like this can be none other than the Messiah and the Son of God, and that in that belief, they might find the secret of life. This is why I do what I do as a preacher. This is my agenda as well. But I include myself as a reader and a hearer also. The hope for all of us is that through our encounters with the Gospels, we will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we will have life in his name. That's our agenda. Thanks be to God.